following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I'd like to start this morning with a mini meditation. I want to ask you to think about something uh, from your past. It will be uh, different for everybody. It's not one specific thing. What I want you to think about is the time in your life when you felt the emptiest. I'm being deliberately open-ended about that. It could be and would be different for everybody. I'm going to give you a minute of silence to think about it, and uh, although in some cases it may be painful to uh, kind of re-experience the emotion and feeling that went with that occasion, the time in your life when you felt the emptiest. Take a minute. Okay, so the time in your life when you felt the emptiest. How many of you knew immediately what memory was going to come to mind? Right. <clears throat> okay, so uh, how many people, f- for you, was that memory of total emptiness one of great joy? Okay, so a lot of people, perhaps it was a moment of, of sadness or grief or loss. How many people don't raise your hands when the pastor says, how many people, yeah. People always raise their hands when I ask that question, which I find very ironic, but it's it's okay. But it is true, isn't it, that although it wasn't exactly evenly represented in this particular room today, that sometimes um, mountaintop experiences of great joy or crowning achievement can leave us feeling totally drained and empty. And on the other hand... Moments of profound grief or deep loss can also leave us feeling totally empty. Failure can leave us feeling empty. Um, Everything from a birth to a death and all the living that comes in between can sometimes drain us and leave us with nothing left. So what I want you to do, what I want you to do is Hold that kind of visceral sense, that feeling, that sense memory, if you will, in your heart and in your mind for the next few minutes. We're going to talk a lot more about emptiness today, Um, but before we get into it, I want to set the context um, in which I will talk about emptiness. And the context is the the current series that we're in. It's called A Christ-Like God. This is our second Eastertide series. We did the Beautiful Gospel series, and now we're doing a Christ-like God series. And we kicked this part of it off last week with a sermon called The Gospel in Chairs. Um, and the central idea of that sermon last week and of this whole series is the simple but profound and revolutionary statement that God is like Jesus. Now... Um, To refresh your memory, uh, or in case you weren't here last week, I make that statement, God is like Jesus, based on all kinds of scripture and the the overall general witness of scripture, but particularly I've called your attention to three passages of scripture. And they are so important and so crucial to the understanding of this concept of a Christ-like God and, in my opinion, uh, 
to an understanding of what the gospel actually is, that I, I printed them out on little pieces of paper for you, and I'd like to give them to you in hopes that you will take them home and memorize them, maybe in your own personal devotional practice. So if one person from each of these four seating sections could come up and take these and begin passing them through your section, that would be wonderful. Uh, there's two for that side and two for this side, and you can just take one over to that section there, Rob. So I'm not going to read all of what's on those papers, but I want to read to you some of the key phrases from these three passages of Scripture because they are so crucial to everything that we want to talk about. From John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made Him known. Jesus makes God known. Hebrews 1. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. The son, Jesus, is the exact imprint of God's very being. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's very being. And Colossians 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to to dwell. And to those three, I would add this one, something that Jesus himself said in John chapter 14. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So, if you want to know what God is like, you need to do nothing more and ought to do nothing more than look to Jesus, first and foremost. Now, let me pause here and acknowledge a very astute objection that was raised um, in my email inbox from a couple of different people at Artisan. People at Artisan are very smart, even and maybe especially the very youngest ones. This objection was raised by somebody as young as 13. And it goes sort of like this. Hang on there, Skippy. Um, <clears throat> 13-year-olds love to use the word Skippy. It's like on fleek and Skippy. That's what they say. Um, <clears throat> Hang on there, Skippy. You're saying that God is like Jesus and that Jesus is nonviolent. What about all the um, Canaanites that God commanded the Israelites to murder in the Old Testament? What about the genocide that he uh, not only blessed but demanded? And I think that's a very fair objection to make. And I will do my best to answer it next week. <laughs> <laughs> I had originally promised on uh, Twitter, so it doesn't count, um, that I would, I would preach this Sunday, as in today, uh, a message called The Old God and the New about... Uh-huh, see, I know. I said that for you guys. Um, whether, whether God is different in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. This is a question that many of us have, is it not? Right. And so I can't promise that I will do justice to that next Sunday but I can promise I would not have done justice to it today. And so I postponed it a week. I will preach on that as best I can. Um, I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to give you an answer that's going to make you go, oh yeah, no problem. But maybe, maybe a framework to, to help understand it. Um, but for today, I, I want us to, as much as we can, put a pin in that huge question. And hear that this assertion that God is like Jesus is consistently presented in Scripture 
and embraced by the early church. Jesus is what God has to say. And particularly when he is at his most vulnerable, that is, on the cross, he reveals the heart of the Father. So then, if we want to go deeper in our understanding of God, which is one reason that some people come to church, we need to go deeper in our understanding of Jesus. And that's exactly what today's central passage will help us to do. And so what I want to do is look at one of the richest and most deeply theological passages of Scripture. It's from Philippians chapter 2. Now, if you would like to uh, follow along in the Red Bibles, you can turn to page 954. That's where Philippians 2 is found in these Bibles. And if you do not own a Bible of your own and we would like to own a Bible, please feel free to take one of these Red red Ones home. We um, buy these a couple times a year and expect and hope that people will take them and make them their own and read them on their own. Now, before I start reading this text, which is going to be verses 5 through 11, I want you to notice something visually on the page. Do you see how verses 6 through 11 are set differently on the page? Right? At least in the Red Bibles there are. Anybody who has their own Bible, is it true in your own Bible as well? There's some indentation that happens there. And let me tell you why that's there. Verses 6 through 11 are indented because they are a quotation. They are a citation. Um, They are uh, a pre-existing text that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the church in Philippi, is quoting from. Specifically, biblical scholars agree that this is very likely a hymn, an early hymn of the Christian church. And this letter was written around 60 AD. There's not a great deal of dispute about the dating of this particular letter, but let's give it 15 years. Let's say it was 75 of the Common Era. This part that we're about to read existed before that, which is to say very early on in the history of the Christian church. Why does this matter? Um, Well, because it is deeply theological, (laughs) and it says some pretty uh, significant things about Jesus and about God. And it, was, it had already been set to music this early in the story, okay? So if I was to say to you, I don't care too much for money because money can't buy me love, you would know that's not original to me, right? <laughs> right? This is a similar kind of thing. Paul is quoting a hymn that already existed before he wrote this letter. So this is what Christians believed about Jesus already, very likely within a couple of decades of his crucifixion and resurrection, Okay? So let us read uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And here comes the hymn. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave or servant. Being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, 
that ending is very important to understanding what was going on with Christianity in the Roman Empire. Whenever you see in one of these letters or in the preaching of the apostles the phrase, Jesus is Lord, you need to assume, you need to put it in parentheses in your mind, Caesar is not. The title of Lord was reserved for the emperor of the Roman Empire. It was a deeply subversive and politically rebellious thing to say that Jesus was Lord. And this business about every knee bending and heaven on earth, what, was, what did the Romans consider their great pride? That they had conquered the whole known world and that every knee in the empire bowed to, the, to, to Caesar. Right? The Christians are saying no. Every knee bows to Jesus. Jesus is Lord. It's the kind of thing that would get you crucified or thrown to the lions or down a well, that kind of stuff. It would be as if uh, somebody wrote a very patriotic-sounding song with the, the, the correct uh, tempo and drum beats and uh, brass section and uh, sang a song about Jesus instead of about America, except that the Roman Empire was much more oppressive <laughs> and like openly hostile to that kind of language. Right? It would have been very jarring, is all I'm trying to say, in the, in the ears of these people who, who heard this letter read. But that's not what I, uh, what I want to talk to you about today. <laughs> what I want to talk to you about today is one key word in this hymn, in, the, in this passage here. It's verse 7. Uh, it's the word emptied. Right? The idea that Jesus would empty himself. This is such an important and central theological topic that um, Bible nerds have assigned it a, a name from the root language. <laughs> Do you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the image of God and I said, if it's, we, we call it the Imago Dei. If it's in Latin, you know it's really important. Well, in this case, it's in Greek, and theologians think this is really important. It's the word kenosis. That's the Greek word, and all it means is emptying. It's a fun word to say. Can I do the Mr. Rogers thing? Can you all say kenosis with me? Kenosis with me. Um, <laughs> I knew that you could. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it means emptying. And so what I want to ask you to do is think back to 10 minutes ago. That time when I asked you to recall the moment when you felt the emptiest. Do you have that visceral sense? Is your stomach tightened up in a knot? Whatever it might have been. That's the idea that the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate here in using the word kenosis to describe Jesus. But you say, what does that even mean? That Jesus emptied himself. Well, let me give you one version of what it means, and it's a version that I think is um, very commonly understood, but which is insufficient and um, contains some misunderstandings. Right? Here's the common explanation for what it means that Jesus emptied himself. It goes like this. Jesus uh, was God at the beginning. Talked about it earlier. Thumbs up to that. He didn't take advantage of that. He didn't exploit it or grasp at it, to use the language of the text. In fact, he emptied himself of all his divinity and became a human being. He became a man. And that man lived a human life. 
and at the end of that short human life was put to death, and then God raised him from the dead and reversed that act of emptying and filled Jesus back up with his divinity and lifted him up in the heavens, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, fully God once again. That's the explanation that makes the most sense to us, and I think I know why it is. I'll tell you why I think it's mistaken in a minute. But why it makes sense to us is that we are a very dualistic people. What I mean by that is we, are, we see things as very black and white. We're binary. It's either on or it's off. Jesus is either God or he's a human being. It's one or the other. And so it makes more sense to us to conceive of the incarnation as a time when Jesus emptied himself of his divinity, became a human being, lived his life, was crucified, died, and was buried, was raised from the dead, replenished with divinity, ascended to the Father, like to use the language of the creed, and now uh, he's God again. But as many of you know, Orthodox Christian teaching is that Jesus at all times was both fully God and fully human. It's one of those divine mysteries. So let me try to uh, give you a different explanation of kenosis, his emptying, that uh, is more consistent with Orthodox Christian theology. Right? I don't want to be too nerdy with you, but this is, this is something important to do. Let's say it this way. God has existed eternally as Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This eternal divine dance is always one of pouring out love from within the Trinity. And it spills over into the world in the act of creation. So there is an emptying at the creation of the universe. God empties himself in making the world. Now, in the incarnation, which is that time when Jesus appeared on earth as a man, the Son took on fully human form and nature, never ceasing to be God, in order to reveal this eternal outpouring of self-emptying love to us. And because this outpouring of self-emptying love is inherent to the essence of the Trinity, Jesus' death on the cross was an exaltation, a lifting up of the divine nature. God exalted Jesus, not in spite of his humiliating death, but because of it, and in the course of it, and by it. You see, it is always in God's nature to practice kenosis, to experience emptying. Jesus doesn't come and do that, and it's new. That's the way God has always been. God is like Jesus. See, even, even before the crucifixion, in his key teachings, Jesus pointed out time and time again the truth that submission and humility and servanthood are the ways of God. Jesus' magnum opus is the Sermon on the Mount. Would you agree with me about that? The, the, like the, the core of his teaching, right there, starts in Matthew 5. How does it begin? Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the one who told his disciples when they were arguing about who would be the greatest that whoever wants to be first must be last of all and a servant of all. Jesus is the one who told the people who were following him around, if you really want to become my followers, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. By the way, I feel like we completely miss the import of that particular teaching because we exist in the time after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. So when we hear Jesus say, if you want to be my follower, you have to take up your cross and follow me, we think, oh yeah, sure, just like you did, and then you were raised from the dead. Can you imagine being his original audience, hearing those words, take up your cross, before he had taken up his cross? Oh, they knew what a cross was. The cross was where the Roman Empire executed rebels. If you want to be Jesus' follower, you have to take up your electric chair and follow him. For Jesus' original hearers to, 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 to hear that, would it, I, I just can't even conceive of how they would have responded to it. It's so easy for us because we know the rest of the story, but they didn't yet. Okay, all of that to say, kenosis, emptying, is not something that God does only as the person of Jesus on the cross. It's not even something that God does only as the person of Jesus during the Incarnation. Jesus shows us in his teachings and in his actions that it is in God's eternal nature to self-empty. So when I've been going on and on and on for weeks and weeks and maybe months and months and pushing into years now, this idea that uh, when Jesus answers systemic sin and violence, not with violence or power of his own, but with what? With love and forgiveness. How many times have you heard me say that in the last several months? I keep going on and on about that and how that reveals the true heart of the Father. I've been talking about kenosis the whole time. The whole thing has been about divine emptying. Now, this is lofty theology. And what we need to do is bring it down to the realm of human experience because after all, that's where we are going to need to try to apply it. Something that is echoed throughout the early Christian church in its writings, in its activities, and in the decisions it makes is that we are to be imitators of Christ. How many times have we heard this, that we should imitate Jesus? It's been a pervasive theme in the Christian church all along. Right for, you just go one book over to Ephesians and hear these words. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, And live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Take it up to the early 1400s. Thomas Akempis writes what is probably the most widely known and read devotional uh, writing in history uh, of Christianity called The Imitation of Christ. 
You can take it all the way up to the mid-90s, man, when I was in college and those bracelets started to appear. And what did they say on them? WWJD. What would Jesus do? How many, how many people wore a WWJD bracelet? Uh-huh. I know you did. How many of you uh, imitated Jesus at every moment that bracelet was cra- clasped onto your wrist? <laughs> uh, I caught you. <laughs> I avoided that problem by never wearing that bracelet. <laughs> but we don't have to look far afield. We don't have to look to the mid-90s, man. We don't have to look uh, even one book over in the Bible. All we have to do is look at the same passage we've been looking at this morning from Philippians 2, and that imitation concept is right there. What did Paul say in the sentence before he quoted that kenosis hymn? Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And if we were to back up a few verses to the beginning of chapter 2, and read this broader intro to the Kenosis hymn, it's all there too. Here's how it begins. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, in other words, any of these things that you get from from the grace of Jesus, make my joy complete, be of the same mind, which I don't think means agree with each other. I think it means agree with Jesus. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And it's there that we pick up with verse 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus and into that hymn. If you get any consolation from the love of Christ, have the same love. In humility, regard others as better than yourselves. What does it say later on in that hymn? Christ emptied himself and humbled himself to the point of death. Christ had humility and you must have humility. By the way, have you ever noticed the etymological connection between humility and humiliation? Certainly in the case of the crucifixion, it would have been more like the latter which makes it, of course, less desirable for us to imitate. We might be okay with uh, humility because, after all, sometimes people notice how humble you are, and that feels pretty good. If you want me to be humiliated, I'm not so sure I'm going to sign up for that one. Hang on there, Skippy. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This is Paul laying out what it means to be a Christian. And what it means to be a Christian is to be a little bit like Jesus. Which in this case means you have to imitate his emptiness. His kenosis. And so what I want you to do now is imagine something beautiful with me. What I want you to imagine is if the whole world, every person lived this way. Imagine if every person was converted to the way of Jesus, to the imitation of Christ, to this act of continual, voluntary emptying. Not considering their power 
and their strength, something to be grasped, something to be exploited, something to be built upon and multiplied, but instead seeing their power and their strength as something to be released in an act of love toward those around them. And not only just to their friends around them, but even and perhaps especially to their enemies, maybe especially to the people they don't like, the people who don't like them, and the people who have actively sought to harm them. I do recognize that I say this from a a place of fairly significant privilege. And uh, that there's not a like a giant group of people seeking to actively harm me. (laughs) But I believe this is the truth of the gospel and the key to salvation. If the whole world did that, all of us, would that save the world? Would that solve our problems? I think it sure would get us close. But I hear your objection. Your objection is, well... That's an impossible dream. That's never going to happen. It's never going to be true that every person in the world will be converted to this idea of self-emptying love. Look at a newspaper, dummy. And you're probably right. From a practical standpoint, it's very tempting to take that pessimistic view. I'll tell you one thing. It is certainly true that if our definition of the gospel is say this prayer so that when you die, you can go to heaven, the world is never going to embrace the fullness of self-emptying love. But if you and I and some of our closest friends started to live the gospel of self-emptying love, of regarding ourselves less than and others better than, of looking not to our own interests but to the interests of others, if we actually lived that gospel instead of just preaching about it, that would make all the difference, wouldn't it? This is the kind of thing that has to start somewhere. And what if we were to say it starts with me? I will be the first one. You ever had an argument with somebody you love and you know it's just going to spiral until one of you says, I give up. I own my part in this. I'm sorry. Can we take a step back so that we can take a step forward? It is the worst thing in the world to be the person who has to say that first. I don't want to be the first person. I am more than happy to apologize after you do. (laughs) Right? This is the same thing. Somebody has to empty himself or herself first. Somebody has to go first. And it has to be you. And it has to be me. But here's the challenge. It's not just like you can press a button and suddenly kenosis happens. You're empty, and it feels so good. No. Emptying yourself sucks. It hurts, it's hard, and it's not fun. Because what has to happen 
before you empty yourself is you have to let go of something that you are holding really tightly. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Did not consider it something to be exploited. Did not consider it an asset that he could work with and build upon. Instead, he emptied himself. The move toward emptiness cannot happen until the release of what you're grasping takes place. And so one last time, I want to give you a minute of relative silence to think about what it is in your life that you are grasping onto so tightly, that you want to hold and exploit and leverage and use to your advantage. And I want you to think about what you need to do to let it go, to empty yourself. Take just a minute. Do you know what you're holding on to? Do you know how you're going to let go of it? Let's pray. God, we see in Jesus the perfect heart of the Trinity. The divine love which is eternally emptying itself, pouring itself out, for us and for the world. May we have the strength and courage it requires to let go of what we're grasping, to be the first person to empty ourselves. And may we see the world begin to be saved as a result by the grace and power that comes through meaningful faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, in addition to having the communion elements available to you, we have something else, which is these glasses of water here. It's a bit of an interactive object lesson. And uh, you might choose not to take communion this morning. It's always okay if you're here and you don't quite feel like you own this story as your own yet and you don't want to say something that isn't true of yourself. Um, Even if that's you, you can still come to the table and do this, which is to take one of these glasses of water and simply pour it into the empty one that's next to it. And what you see happens there is that you make a little bit of a mess. Emptying leaves you empty, but it fills up the person next to you. And if we will all do this, we can change the world. I don't want to be too starry-eyed. Will you be a person who practices kenosis? Not sometime next year, but today and and this week. Who can you empty yourself next to in your life? So make that practice yours. Our table's open. Come and receive his grace.
For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.